Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. That brings us uh, to step seven, uh, identifying goals that allow me to combat the impact of my suffering. And this is where we enter into phase three uh, of the recovery process. And one of the biggest challenges here is to find ways to be active without accepting false guilt. Because it's very easy for us to think, if I can do this and feel better than if I'd been doing this all along, I never would have felt bad. And we can use things that are helpful to help get um, guilt back on top of us. Now, as we look at things that we can do, uh, we're going to go back to those three symptom clusters that we looked at earlier and see how do we begin to counter each of those symptom clusters. And so the first one we start with, uh, hyperarousal. Yet, uh, and again, when we think of hyperarousal, part of what we need to remember is hyperarousal was an initial but ineffective attempt to establish a sense of safety. If I can just keep my eye on everything all the time, then I will be safe. And when we begin to surrender that ineffective attempt at establishing safety, we're going to feel unsafe. And so, uh, don't feel surprised uh, if that happens. Um, The primary objective of countering hyperarousal symptoms is staying grounded in the present so that you can focus on those things that you want to give your attention to. Uh, It is, uh, there is a correlation between uh, movies and television shows that hop around in their time frame and our understanding of post-traumatic stress. Uh, You may have noticed that the complex storylines of something like a 24, if you watch the Jack Bauer shows, and the way that it hops from different times, as we have come to understand post-traumatic stress better, uh, and authors always kind of look for those points of greatest angst and pain in the human experience, Uh, That is where um, the storylines of many of our most popular cinema shows are capturing that sense of what it is like to experience trauma. And so uh, that what we want to do is to remain grounded in the present and to be able to experience life as linearly as possible. And so we start by lessening the habits of hypervigilance. Um, Hypervigilance is kind of a way of life. And what we want to do is become aware of those moments when we're responding more out of our hyperarousal habit than we are in the moment that we're in, and then change our relationship to that anxiety. And I think it is better to say change our relationship to the anxiety than eliminate it. Because elimination is all or nothing. I can change my relationship to something over time. And... Um, you know, we, are, we are not going to eradicate anxiety. I'm not even sure we want to. 
we live in an unsafe world. I mean, there's just plenty of bad things that go on that there is times when it is appropriate for me to be concerned. And so what I want to do is to change my relationship with anxiety to such a way that I can listen to it when it is helpful and tune it out when it's not. Um, And so when you begin to feel anxiety, the kind of conversation that you have with yourself might go something like this. I am anxious. Something about this moment reminds me of the past, or maybe I just don't feel comfortable being relaxed yet. That's okay. God is patient with me as I grow, so I should be patient with myself. The important thing to do now is to stop fighting my anxiety. Fighting my anxiety only makes it worse. When I fight my anxiety, I am heightening the sense of stress and remind myself that anxiety is no longer necessary. Once I have done that, I can use relaxation techniques to counter the physiological impact of anxiety and help me return to a sense of calm. And so I I want to be able to become aware in that moment I am being anxious. This has more to do with the past than the present. I want to be able to have a conversation like that. And when I finish that conversation and I've created a little distance between me uh, and my sense of anxiety, my body's still going to be amped up. I want to do some things to return my body to a sense of calm so that my body is a better house for my soul. And so one of those things I can do is breathe. These are the kinds of things that get counselors in trouble because we sound hokey and cheesy and nobody listens to us. So I'm going to try to explain the background on these things so you don't dismiss me and go, he was doing so good, and then he went quack. Um, So why do I say breathe? Well, there's an odd thing about our body. It measures the temperature of our nasal cavity to determine whether we are safe or in danger. When our nasal cavity gets hot, our body reads that as a threat, and it kicks on the adrenal system. And so when I take a long, deep breath in through my nose and out through my mouth, I'm pulling cool air over my nasal cavity. I'm taking the hot air from my body, 98.6, out through my mouth. I'm cooling that area off. It's more like taking my foot off the gas than it is putting it on the brake, Uh, but it helps decrease the amount of anxiety in my body. Now, you may say, how much effect can that have? Let me give you a parallel example. Many people say they're addicted to cigarettes because it helps them relax. Okay, let's do a little thought experiment. What is the chemical agent in cigarettes? Nicotine. What type of agent is nicotine? A stimulant. Do I take a stimulant to relax? No. So that means if I feel like I compulsively must have a cigarette to relax, then the long rhythmic breaths of smoking are more relaxing than nicotine is stimulating. And so it can have an impact. Pace of thought reduction. When we get scared, do we think fast or do we think slow? Fast. I mean, think about this. When your kids come to you and they think the boogeyman was in their closet, any parent kind of first thing, instinctively, we don't even know we're doing this. What we say, slow down, slow down, slow down. I can't understand a word you're saying. And it's in the process of telling their story more slowly 
that they begin to calm themselves down. When you're around somebody who talks really fast, do you not get stressed out afterwards? I mean, you just walk away like, oh man, why can't they talk slower? When I've got somebody and I, I can sense that they are on a brink of a panic attack, one of the things that I begin to do is I try to make eye contact to capture the visual sense. I will talk a little faster at first, and once I get them, I just want you to listen to me. I want you to repeat back to yourself. Anything that you hear me saying, I just want you to say back in your head. And, and I try to use my voice as an anchor to get the pace of their thinking to slow down. Because when our thoughts are slower, there is an innate ability to, to sense that my world is safer. A third one is progressive muscle relaxation. These are kind of your introductory level uh, of relaxing your body. Uh, EMDR is maybe a more advanced version of this kind of thing. But progressive muscle relaxation just means you kind of go one muscle group at a time. And so if you clench your fist, kind of hold them tight, uh, slowly count to ten. Uh, as you do that, the clenched muscle is going to restrict blood flow to that area. Uh, the flexing of the muscle is going to release lactic acid. Uh, that's why when you do aerobics and the next day your muscles are all like burning and achies because you're letting lactic acid in there. Um, anxiety and stress produces contaminants in our body that builds up in our muscles, and that's what makes us feel achy and tight. And so if we do that for about a 10 count, that lactic acid is going to begin to absorb those contaminants. And then when we release, the blood flow returns just the way it's supposed to. It takes that acid out, takes it through our kidneys, no ill effects. And our body is returned to a more relaxed sensation. And when we go through life and we can tell, I mean, if you just kind of get tight and do this a whole lot, you'll begin to feel stressed. And you feel like my body is not allowing me to relax. And so beginning to do some things that counter that physiological buildup of stress is something that you can do uh, to reduce the impact uh, of the hyperarousal symptoms. And then after that, instead of just kind of running away from the moment, I would encourage maybe another conversation. And here, uh, I'm going to personify anxiety, uh, just because I think that's a good way to make it feel a little less ghostly. And so after I kind of get a little distance and relax myself, I might talk to my anxiety this way. Thank you. Thank you again for how you've served me and are available to protect me whenever a situation warrants. But you're being overprotective. Like a big brother who won't let their younger sibling uh, grow up. I'm stronger now. That doesn't mean I'll never need you again. There will be situations where your presence is needed. But I will be calling on you less and less now. This is good for me. Thank you again for how you've tried to protect me in hard times, but I look forward to seeing less of you with a kind smile. It, when I can begin to relate to my anxieties in that way and begin to get some distance from that moment, um, it, it gives me more of a sense of voice, more of a sense that I can make influential choices, that I have a sense of autonomy. It... Uh, and so we move there uh, to responding better to post-traumatic agitation. Again, fight-or-flight response is always on. It, it's easier to get agitated at smaller disruptions. Uh, and, and responding proportionally to these agitants is part of reclaiming my emotional world. 
Again, it feels like my emotional world doesn't entirely belong to me. Responding proportionally is part of how I get my emotional world back. And I think it's helpful here for us to see that anger, especially uh, in the aftermath of trauma, is usually a secondary emotion. Now, there was a time when I thought secondary emotion was just kind of psychobabble talk. Um, But I think there's a lot more validity to it than I initially gave it on first swipe. A primary emotion is how we feel about a given event. A secondary emotion is how we feel about feeling that way in that event. So classic example. I see my kids running towards the road. They're going that way. What is my initial emotion? Fear. How do I feel about being afraid for the safety of my children? That makes me mad. And so when I call out and tell them, stop, get back here. They come back, do they think Papa's afraid or angry? Because the secondary emotion is right out there on the front. Uh, and I'm trying to go, I'm not, I'm not angry. I just, I want to make sure you're okay. They're not buying it. <laughs> because the secondary emotion is more right out there on the surface. One of our goals is to begin to express fear as fear instead of fear as anger. And so I give us a way to look at that. It's very similar to what we just went through. To be aware of this dynamic as it's happening. If I'm not aware of what's going on, there's not an opportunity to do much about it. So the first step in most things is becoming aware of it in real time. Secondly, resist any sense of shame. I don't need to feel bad that I have an exaggerative response because I went through something traumatic. Post-traumatic stress is a natural response to an unnatural circumstance. And so I I resist shame. Uh, I calm my physical reaction. There's going to be that same kind of amping up that I need to calm down. And I change my relationship to anger in the same way that I was trying to do with anxiety. Where I begin to, you know, there's a time when it was right for me to be angry when something this wrong was going on. That's what the trauma was. Anger was needed to rally the kind of fortitude to take on the situation that was there. I just want to begin to respond to this moment for what this moment is instead of responding to the shadow of the past in the present. And that means I have to change my relationship to these hyper-arousal emotions. Now, second area uh, that we begin to look at is countering intrusive symptoms. Um, it, uh, this is where we, we want to be able to choose what we think about. We want to be able to pick up and put down our thoughts. So, again, I'm a dog person, so think of it like a pesky cat. Uh, if a cat jumps in my lap and I want to pet it, I'll pet it. If I don't, I'm going to put it down, and if it gets up there again, I'm going to shoot it with a water gun. Uh, it just, we're, we're doing this on my terms. It becomes much harder to do that with our thoughts where we can pick them up and put them down in a post-traumatic experience. And so the first thing that we're going to look at uh, is decreasing the power of triggers. And here we want to be able to accurately gauge and respond to troubling events. Um, You know, intrusive symptoms, they gain their force by exaggerating or falsely generating a degree of threat. 
Uh, So in this section, we're going to look at how to prevent that amping up. In the next section, we're going to look how to amp down uh, when that happens. Right here, we're going to look at about kind of a four-step process. Uh, Don't think of this as like any kind of magic. Uh, It's much more like a fire drill. Uh, And so the first thing, when we can tell we're coming to a moment where there is a trigger and it's beginning to grab a hold of us, is we stop. Now stop is different from freeze. Freeze is a fear response. Stop is an intentional response. Stop is, I'm going to do this on my terms. Um, Breathe. This is more than a relaxation technique. We take a couple of deep breaths. It will help us kind of relax in the ways that we talk about, but it's just taking our foot off the gas. It's a further establishment that, that I am going to dictate the pace at which I address this, and I'm going to be intentional about what I do. And then I think. Options equal freedom. When I can go through and say, what would be good? What is an outcome that would be desirable to me? Being able to consider options is a sign of freedom. And so, just thinking in and of itself is me distancing myself from the kind of bondage I feel like I'm in when I'm wrapped up in a post-traumatic symptom. And then choose. This is establishing that sense of power, and voice. Now part of what we need to realize is we're not always going to make the best choice. But it's going to be our choice and we'll learn from it. Because think about it. Do people who haven't experienced a trauma always make the best choice? No! Why do we get to grade ourselves on a different scale? I want to make an intentional choice that seems wise to me in that moment. I want to have the freedom to evaluate it and learn from it so that as I am in more and more situations that are like that, I make better and better choices. As I do that, things are going well. Now, what about a flashback or a panic attack? You know, these are more than sticky memories. When we have a flashback or a panic attack, uh, what happens is our our present experience kind of goes to the background and our past experience comes to the foreground. Again, we talked about how traumatic memories imprint that we don't remember it like an event on a screen, like we're watching a movie. We remember it from behind our eyes. And the past events begin to hijack our five senses. That's one of the ways that we described it. And so in the way that we want to counter those things, I think the most effective way to do that is to begin to use the five senses as a way to ground myself in this moment. And so sight. If I can get to a mirror and just look at myself in the mirror, uh, particularly if the trauma that I experienced is when I was young, instead of viewing myself as a child, I begin to view myself as an adult. I see my adult face. Uh, that, That begins to ground me here and now. Uh, when I've had individuals begin to, to have a panic attack or slip into a flashback in my office, it may be cliche, but I have a fish tank, um, and, and I'll just encourage them, pick one of the fish and watch it. Follow it. Uh, begin to get your attention on something in the here and now. Smell. Smell is one of the 
uh, senses that is most closely aligned with memory. When I've had people who are slipping into a flashback, they may talk about smelling the most musty house in which they were abused in or smelling the smell of gunpowder when they were in a dangerous, violent situation. They, it's as if they begin to go back there and the olfactory sense revolts on them. And so if there's a smell that you particularly enjoy, uh, warm cinnamon or vanilla or something like that, having a potpourri sack uh, that's just something that can call that sense um, to that moment and help kind of say, I, I am choosing where I'm at. Uh, I am grounding myself here and now. Uh, touch. It, uh, again, if you're in a home situation, kind of having a pet that's warm and friendly and uh, having, uh, even if it's there in my office, asking somebody to feel the chair, the smoothness of the leather, something that kind of grounds them to the present situation. Uh, sound. Uh, trying to get them to follow uh, my voice. It might be playing uh, music, uh, probably not Eye of the Tiger right here, something a little more soothing than that. Um, you know, something that uh, associates with a, uh, a pleasant experience for you. Uh, taste, just having something that is pleasant and sweet uh, that's there. Uh, probably not the time to go for Sour Patch Kids and just try to shock yourself or something like that. Uh, but something where you are grounding yourself in that moment. And there's a sense in which just having access to these things, having them there, begins to give you a sense that there's something that you can do. And so now we come uh, to lessening the constrictive symptoms, where we begin to learn to feel again. It, you know, what do you do when a television is radically too loud? You mute it, uh, and you turn it down before you, you let it come back on. Uh, oftentimes, we try to do that uh, with our emotions, but then we're not quite sure uh, how to turn them back on again. And so here on 32, uh, I just give you a, some relatively minor things that would be the kind of choices that you could make uh, to begin to choose to feel again, Maybe it's listening to your favorite song and just allowing yourself uh, to become unaware of your surroundings as you enjoy the song. Saying yes to the invitation of a friend. Watching a funny movie and allowing yourself to laugh. Those things don't sound like radical kind of emotional adventures. But they're just placing myself in a position to incrementally uh, begin to feel a bit more. Uh, as you do that, don't label your emotions as good or bad. Because our tendency when we do that is to label good emotion or to label pleasant emotions as good and unpleasant emotions as bad. Yet and we need to have a little more flexibility than that. Because um, kind of worst case scenario, what we'll find is that what we're feeling is historically valid. It's just not situationally appropriate. It makes total sense in light of what I've experienced. It just doesn't fit this emotion, this situation. So that doesn't make it bad. It just means I need to begin to relate to this emotion or for, to this situation for what it is and to relate to this emotion a bit differently. And if I begin to say, that's bad, I shouldn't feel that way and beat myself up, then I'm going to cave in because of guilt and I'm not going to be able to sort my emotional laundry in a way that says, 
this situation is safe. This emotion makes sense in light of my past. I'm going to relate to the emotion differently, and I'm going to try to reconnect with life and relationship a bit more fully than I did before. And if I get a little bit of progress in that, that's a win. It uh, Refuting shame. Uh, it's in this section here that the material begins to have more of an abuse focus. Uh, and so when you look at the materials here, I pull a lot from Diane Langberg and Stephen Tracy. Uh, those are primarily abuse-related resources. It... Um, in terms of refuting shame, um, you know, a couple of the big things here uh, is clarifying ownership. Something wrong happened. It's just I didn't do it. It happened to me instead of happening by me. And so I need to be able to accept the judge's verdict, uh, which is more than just hearing God say, not guilty. It's also hearing God say, much loved. Uh, I care for you. And then prayerfully handing shame back to the abuser. Uh, this isn't some kind of like emotional reactionary moment. Uh, I like what Stephen Tracy says here. He says, one of the most empowering things an abuse survivor can do is to prayerfully hand shame back to his or her abuser. Theologians rarely discuss this concept, but it's a frequent biblical theme. Biblical writers often ask God to shame their abusive enemies. Most likely, this meant God asking God to do two things. Cause the abuser to be overwhelmed with shame for his or her sin so that they would repent. Uh, or um, bring utter destruction on the abuser if they fail to repent. Uh, for survivors of abuse, the most damaging definitions of forgiveness are those that conflate, uh, that make forgiveness, trust, reconciliation, all the same thing. Uh, choose to reject. It isn't necessarily rejecting the person, but it's rejecting their message. If they will not give up their blame-shifting response, then if that is the way you insist on interpreting what happened, I can only relate to you in truth. I will not relate to you in lies. And the idea behind experiencing authentic community is if I'm in the midst of a situation where I have this much negative messaging coming in, this much reinforcement of my suffering destructive story, I want to have more outlets where I am getting a healthy gospel-centered approach to what's going on. I want the number of voices in my world to be outnumbered truth to untruth uh, so that it is easier for me to refute that. This next section uh, is primarily about forgiveness. Uh, it has a little bit to do uh, with confrontation and how to forgive. Uh, I'm just going to touch on a, a few aspects here. Uh, under that aspect of confrontation, um, every confrontation, if, if you're getting to this point and you feel like you need to confront someone who has been abusive, it should be governed by a purpose. And that purpose should be able to be fulfilled even if the other person is not cooperative. If what you want from that encounter requires the other person acknowledging what happened in the way that it really happened, there's a strong probability that won't happen. Uh, and so you would be setting yourself up, not because you have an unjust expectation, uh, but because it's just an expectation that doesn't have a high probability of occurring. It needs to be done with care. Uh, the idea here, it's a better a month too late than a month too soon. 
Let me make sure I'm ready before I do that. Uh, requires maturity. Uh, the idea there is when it comes to a confrontation, those who have been abusive in a way to be traumatic, we can't count on them to be mature. And so whatever constraints are going to be brought in on that situation to make sure that it's safe, we're going to have to be the one to do that. Uh, in governed by truth, just means if this person refuses to acknowledge what happened, I can invite them into the light. There is nothing good happens if I join them in darkness. And so the confrontation is an invitation to join me in the light of truth of what happened. I will not get down and begin to mire down and wrestle with you there. Uh, these are the kinds of things that if you're going into this material, I'd really suggest talking with a counselor or a pastor or a trusted friend uh, to help you think through these things. Now, if you were to ask, what do I do with this material from step seven uh, as, I'm, as I'm getting to this point? It may sound odd, but I would say at first, probably nothing. Mark the ones that seem like they would be most helpful to you and then step away from the material for a little while. Rest, reestablish your sense of safety, and then once you've kind of settled with that, then begin to re-engage and give yourself permission to be patient with each approach. Don't pressure yourself to make it work. Be fine with practicing at them. Uh, that's the kind of self-care and patience that models God's patience with you. Uh, and so these are all things that will take a bit of practice in order to get the level of benefit from them that stands to be gained. Uh, and so be patient with yourself in that.